Well, we are, I am so excited to be here with you this morning. In fact, it's such an honor. I feel very humbled to be able to stand before you. And I'm very excited because I've been praying for you. And I actually believe that God has a word for us today. So are you ready to be challenged, to be encouraged? Yeah, he's so good. God is so good. Well, listen, before we begin, I'd like for you to pray with me. We're just gonna ask that God would come in and be in this time. So join me, Lord, we love you so much, God. Lord, we're so thankful for an opportunity like we had this morning to come before you and to worship you, God, to glorify you, to bring you praise, God, to put you where you deserve to be in our life, God, which is number one. So God, we just ask that you would be in the rest of this time, Lord. God, I thank you that the word of God is alive and active. I thank you that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. God, I thank you that it judges our thoughts and our attitudes, God. And Lord, we ask today, all of us corporately ask, God, that as the word goes forth today, God, that we would be challenged and God, we would be transformed. So Lord, I pray that you would be in the rest of this day. God, that you would be exalted, that we may leave knowing you more. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we are so excited if you're joining us online too. So excited to have you here this morning. The title of my message today is When Culture Shifts. How many of you guys know that culture is shifting? In fact, raise your hand if you feel it. All of our hands, yes. We're all feeling the shifting that's happening in culture. And you know, the reality for me, I learned at a pretty early age that culture does indeed shift. Just a little bit about me. Some of you may know this, but if, if you do, just kind of humor me a little bit. But I was not born in a Christian home. I had two parents who were just doing their thing. They were good people. We were just living our lives. And so my life growing up, even though it was very good, we were just kind of, you know, doing our thing. Like, I just was like into culture and media and music and movies. And I was just a wild kid. In fact, my mom is very gracious now, but I'm pretty sure my mom was convinced that I was gonna be on America's Most Wanted. I was a horrible child, horrible, okay? I was a leash kid, and it wasn't because she just was overprotective, it was because I needed a leash, okay? I got loose in Montgomery Ward one time, they had to call the cops, it was like a whole thing. So I was just a bad kid. And so this kind of, you know, like here I am, I'm a, you know, I'm like, I'm a wild child, I'm kind of a bad kid, and so I turned, you know, like, probably it was like seven or eight years old. And I remember I grew up with a bunch of boys in a neighborhood, loved it. They were rough and it was just lots of good times. We were playing football and all kinds of stuff. And we would always have these annual talent shows where all of us would get together our talents and then we'd perform it in front of the parents. And this year in particular, um, we all decided to go solo, which was honestly good for me. This is my dream in life. Like everybody's watching me, okay? And so everybody's going before me and here with performances like magic tricks and somebody did like some sports thing. I don't even remember. And I just remember very clearly being like, I I did something very different here. I'm, what I'm about to do is very different than what these people are doing, but okay, whatever. I was very excited because I practiced really hard. And so I got up in front of all the parents of us eight-year-olds, because we were all pretty much the same year or younger. And I got in front and did my best rendition of I'll Make Love to You by Boys to Men. <laughs> my mom was horrified and so was my dad, as you can imagine. 
An eight-year-old shouldn't even know what that is or be able to sing to it, and here I was. And here's the deal. My, it wasn't like my home was a bad home. It was just, that's, that's what I was listening to. I was listening to Boys to Men. I liked the song. I thought I could, do a, I could do it service, and so I performed it. And I'm pretty sure that that is when my mom was like, no, like, we need something because it's going to be bad. And so we're kind of living life, and probably in the fall of that year, so like around eight, my mom had a really good friend named Crystal who had been inviting my mom to church and had told her, like, listen, there's going to be this fall festival. You and Jessica should come. It'll be a lot of fun. You know, you guys should come. And so my mom was like, this child needs Jesus. She needs something. So we're going to try this. And so we went to the fall festival, but here's the thing. Before we went, my mom was very nervous because this was a costume party. But as many of you guys know, at some churches, fall fe- when it's called a fall festival, nobody's coming in demonic cl- costumes, okay? Well, that year I had decided that I was gonna be a witch. <laughs> and I'd been working on my costume for months because this was my time to shine. I love to be the center of attention. And so here I was, I was going to be a witch and it was gonna be the best witch I could be. And my mom was very nervous about us going to the fall festival. And so she told her friend Crystal, like, listen, we wanna come, but Jessica's gonna be a witch. And Crystal's like, oh, it's fine, bring her. You know, my mom ends up calling, the pastor ends up calling my mom. And he says, listen, I know what Jessica's gonna be and I know how you're feeling about it. This is what I want you to do. I want you to bring that little girl to church. And so here we go to the fall festival. I am a witch. <laughs> there were no other witches, so I, was, I definitely stood out. And um, we felt loved and we felt like we belonged. And so we got connected to a church. That's how it happened for us. And we started going to this church. And let me tell you, my mom got radically saved. And so did I. I would eventually give my heart to the Lord in a Sunday school classroom, yeah, with flannel graphs and everything. And let me tell you something, there is nothing wilder than some flannel graphs in the 90s on Bible stories, okay? No one did it better than Miss Arlene Mitchum. I could tell you that right now. And I got saved in that Sunday school classroom. And my mom was the kind of mom, once she got saved, that was it. That's what we were doing. We were doing church. It wasn't an option. We were there every time the doors were open. We would go clean. We would do all kinds of stuff. And so my mom, a couple years later, we would have gotten invited to this revival that was coming into town. It was like a two-day revival. My mom, somebody from the church was like, oh, you should guys guys succumb. It's going to be so good. My mom's like, yep, we're going to be there. And this revival, which I was very excited about, was called Rock of Ages, okay? Now, I was very excited because I didn't know what Rock of Ages was, but as someone, as a child, whose dream was to be a ballet dancer and do nails on the side, I assumed that it was going to be everything and more. Like I'm picturing rock concert, lights, smoke, maybe people being lifted, maybe Jesus, like someone dresses Jesus coming out. I have lots of ideas about how Rock of Ages is gonna go and I'm very excited about going. And so here we go, we go to Rock of Ages, Revival, this small little church in the middle of nowhere. And boy, was I wrong. (laughs) That is not at all what Rock of Ages Revival was, not even close. And in fact, we walked in, um, the pastor was standing at the front on the stage and they were playing music, records, like actual records that you put in with the spin thing. And um, he was letting us know at the time that apparently culture was out to get us, especially the media and especially in music. And at the time there was this controversy going on because a lot of people believe that, and you know, whatever, but a lot of people believe that these music artists were taking records, flipping them over, recording them backwards, putting messages on records. 
So these satanic messages were going out as we were listening to like Led Zeppelin, okay? And so this is what was literally playing when we got into Rock of Ages. It was some record and he was holding it down and playing it like backwards. And it was literally like, I serve Satan. It was like something insane. And I was like, what is this? I was terrified. I was like, what is this? And the rest of the night, that's what he did. He basically would go through all this popular culture, these musicians and what their agenda was and how they wanted to come for us. And they're putting mix of messages in our songs we don't even know. We're just like listening to serve Satan and we were gonna all just go to hell and we had to get rid of it, you know? And I was terrified. The only thing I remember that night was this. He told us the next day that we should bring all of our stuff with us like all these media forms, like movies, music, and whatever. Very excited because, okay, again, I'm like 10 and my brain is not developed. I'm like, okay, well, this is perfect. This is what I've been waiting for. We're all gonna bring in our tapes and our VHSs, and then we're gonna like just show each other. Because if one thing daycare taught me was the power of a show and tell, right? It was like show and tell was everything. And I was like, I'm gonna bring all my stuff and we're just gonna like trade like, you take, a, you take a Lion King for like a Little Mermaid or you know, you had this New Kids on the Block tape and I'll take that one. And I know that's what it was gonna be. So literally we go home, it was like shoving my bag, like all the VHSs, all of it. My mom's pulling out her records, you know, whatever. We get to night two of Rock of Ages. And as you can imagine, night one did not go how I thought it would. And night two certainly didn't go how I thought it would. Because that was the night that he decided to let us know that not only are these musical artists trying to indoctrinate us with satanic messages backwards on a record, but that Disney has an agenda and they're hiding stuff in our movies. So literally one by one, he starts going through these movies, showing the clips, playing them backwards, slowing them down, like all kinds of just stuff. And like all of a sudden, all these things are happening. And, it, and you would think the conviction of the Lord is in my heart, and it's not. I'm literally, I'm so sad because I know what's about to happen. The bag of things that I brought that I thought we were gonna trade were gonna be destroyed. I just knew it. I knew how this was going. I knew how it was going. So at the very end of the, he's like, okay guys, now the time has come that you've all been waiting for. We're gonna get rid of it. We're gonna get rid of the culture in our lives, the things that are dragging us down. Let's all go to the back and in the back, there was the biggest bonfire I've ever seen in my entire life. I don't even know how he was allowed to do it in this tiny church. There it was a fire and he was literally like, okay, it's time, put all of your things in. And I was like sobbing, like just sobbing, holding my VHS tapes. And I know that the pastor's probably like, yes, look, freedom, there she is. I was like, no, I just want the little mermaid. I want to keep her. I like the music. I was so sad. And so threw my stuff in. And that was the moment for me. Now, granted, sanctification is a process. And this still took me a really long time because I had a dealer at daycare that was still making mixtapes behind the scenes. But the reality is for me, that was the moment that I realized for the very first time, regardless of how it was, was that culture was real, that the enemy is real, and that he uses whatever he can to indoctrinate us. Now, this isn't, we're not gonna be talking about whether or not you know, people put things backwards on an album, that's for you to figure out. But I wanna get to the heart of what he was trying to get at, that at 10, I couldn't understand. Because the reality is for all of us in this room, for every single one of us, we are in a dilemma. We are in attention. And what is the dilemma that we're in? 
We are living in this tension of number one, our culture is becoming more and more ungodly. It is literally culture is trying to choke out any kind of even evidence of God. And then we have to live in a way that we stand firm in what he calls us to stand firm in this ungodly culture. And on top of that, if we're believers in this room, you are called to go out into your world and to share the gospel in, with a group of people who are living in an ungodly culture. That is quite a dilemma that we're all facing. How many of you guys feel the tension? I feel it. And the reality is, is that the tension that comes from us standing firm and loving others, we all have some sort of reaction to it, right? We're all responding, whether or not we realize it, you know? One response could be that we get so, we get so threatened and frustrated that we just choose to like, you know what, that's it. Like we shut ourselves up, we board ourselves, like I'm not gonna have anything, I'm not gonna listen to anything, I'm not gonna watch anything, I'm not gonna talk to any unchristian people, I'm not gonna do anything. And we board ourselves up from culture or the flip side of it is we get so tired of constantly being indoctrinated and constantly having to fight And what happens is we get so worn down that our temptation is to put out a blanket acceptance so that we don't have to have any kind of cultural conflict at all. And so this is the tension that we're living in. I'm living in it too. I have loved Jesus now a large majority of my life and I feel it every single day. I feel the tension. I grew up, I was born in 1987. I grew up in the early 90s in in elementary school and I, re- I have a very specific memory of being in third grade. I remember my teacher, I remember what she looked like. And I remember it was close to being Easter. And I remember her sharing the story of Jesus dying on the cross in our public school classroom. And then afterwards asking us if we wanted to pray for salvation. I remember that happening. I also went to college in the early 2000s, and I will never forget the very first time I was in an English class, turned in a paper, I put a little tiny word in there, the professor gave it back to me, flunked me, and told me that the word that I used was exclusive. So this is the culture that we're living in, it's the tension that we're living in. It's like, what do we do? We all are facing this dilemma, right? And the greatest question, the biggest question today is, is how do we stand firm in an ungodly culture? And is it even possible? Is it possible for us to do it? And here's, I'm gonna tell you today, it is absolutely possible. It is absolutely possible for us as believers to stand firm in our faith and love people and live in an ungodly culture. It's absolutely possible. And in fact, today, because we've been in our series, People, Places, and Things, we've been traveling through the Bible. Today, we're gonna land in the book of Daniel. And Daniel's one of my favorite books, probably lots of lessons in there, leadership lessons, crazy stories. I love the book of Daniel. And so today we're gonna land there because what we see in the book of Daniel is that Daniel was faced with the same dilemma that we face today. How do we stand firm in an ungodly culture? And here's the thing about Daniel's life, is not only was he able to endure the culture that he was in, he actually influenced it. And here's the thing, right now, the goal for you is not to endure culture. That is not what we're called to do as Christians. We're called to influence it. We're called to be effective in this world. 
And so many of us, we're just going through life, just enduring, enduring what's on TV, enduring all the commercials, enduring the messaging, enduring it. We're just like, just gotta get to heaven. Like that's the goal, you know? And the reality is that God has a plan and a purpose for your life today. And it's to use you to influence where you're at. But we have to figure this out. We have to figure out how do we balance it? Because it is a balance, right? It's a tension and we've gotta figure this out. And so we're gonna be landing in the book of Daniel. And because we're gonna be landing in the book of Daniel, I wanna kind of, there are three characters that I really kind of wanna sift out here at the beginning. And the first is the book of Daniel in and of itself. So I wanna give you some kind of history on it, some kind of context for it. I love the Bible. I like history. I like knowing like why, what's the context of that? Why would that have been happening? I think that's really important if we're gonna look into a book. So the book of Daniel is in the Old Testament. It's a very interesting book. And it's one of my favorites, as I said, it's actually one of the books of the prophets. It's one of the major prophets in your Old Testament. And kind of, if you've never really realized how your Bible is laid out, the Bible is not laid out chronologically. It's actually categorized by types of books. In fact, when you start at the Old Testament, you'll see that there's the law, then there's the history, there's poetry, and then we get into the prophets, right? In the Old Testament. And so Daniel would be classified in the prophetic books And many of us sitting in here, whether or not you've been walking with the Lord for any given number of time, you know a little probably about Daniel. Thank you, VeggieTales, right? We know something about Daniel, right? We've either heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown in the the furnace, the fire, and God was with them. Or maybe you guys know about Daniel in the lion's den, you know, that he was thrown in there because he prayed to his God. And, And so we know all these really awesome stories And so it's important for you to know that Daniel is not just a prophetic book. In fact, Daniel is equal parts historical and equal parts prophetic. If you look at the book of Daniel, the first six chapters are completely historic. It's giving a historical account of Daniel and his people who are brought into exile. The last six chapters of the book of Daniel are end time prophecy. God actually gives Daniel a vision of what's coming. In fact, the latter part of Daniel is a companion book to the book of Revelation. God reveals to Daniel what's gonna come in the end. And so I think this is really interesting that Daniel is both historic and prophetic and yes, classified as a prophetic book. And it makes me wonder if part of the reason isn't because in the book of Daniel, the history actually is prophetic. It's actually like the book of Daniel is giving us this playbook of what's gonna happen in a culture that is rejecting God. And I think it's really important for us to have this kind of understanding so that we can look to it and we can get as much out, uh, out of it as possible. And in fact, Daniel shows in this book how to live in this tension of a shifting culture. Now, the other character that I wanna talk to you about is Israel. Okay, because Daniel is an Israelite. He's a Hebrew boy. He's a teenager when we meet him in the book of Daniel. And I think it's really important for us to understand the book of what we're gonna talk about is to understand Israel and some of the history, some of the things they've been going through. It's very important to the story. So Daniel is a Hebrew boy when we meet him. He's a teenager. And Israel, as we know, are God's chosen people. You can look all throughout the Bible, God chose Israel. Here's the thing, God didn't choose Israel because they were the best and they were just, you know, the most important. He chose them because he was going to use them to reveal himself to them so that he might win the nations. It was about him displaying his glory and so he had purpose on the Israelites. 
And so we see Israel. And in fact, if you go to the book of Exodus, we'll, we'll find a character named Moses. And Moses is called by God because the Israelites at this point in Exodus, they are in Egyptian slavery. They've been enslaved. They're crying out to their God, God rescue us. So God comes to Moses and he tells Moses, I want you to go and get my people. You're gonna free them. And so Moses goes into the land of Egypt. He tells the Pharaoh to let his people go. We know that kind of, there's this tension, there's a struggle and Pharaoh's hard-hearted, no, there's plagues. Finally, Pharaoh's like, take them, go, y'all get out of here. God helps Moses part the Red Sea. The Red Sea is parted. They walk across dry land and here they are, they're free. The Israelites are free. And so God leads them to Mount Sinai and there God wants to establish his covenant with his people. And you know what he asked them for? He said, I'm going to establish my covenant, my promise to you. I want you to be obedient. I want you to follow the laws that I'm giving you, knowing that it's for your good, that I love you, but I need you to be mine. And so as we kind of go throughout the word, we see that the Israelites get in this cycle, this cycle of consistently rejecting God, consistently turning their back on God, consistently disobeying God, consistently um, taking in the gods of other cultures, worshiping other gods before him. And so God begins to raise up these prophets who are speaking to the Israelites about what's gonna happen if they keep doing what they're doing. Because the reality is, is that God is a just God. And when we reject him and we push him aside, there are consequences. And that's what he's telling them. He's like, listen, tell, tell my people, tell them what's gonna come if they, don't, if they don't get it right. They keep rejecting me, this is what's gonna happen. It's not because I want it, it's because this is the consequence of rejecting me. And so he raises up these prophets. We see the Israelites, they wanna look like all the other nations. So now they want a king. And so God gives them a king and there's King Saul and then King David. King David has a son named King Solomon. And at the death of King Solomon, something significant happens to the Israelites. Their kingdom, which consisted of 12 tribes, becomes split. The first part, the Northern part, consists of, the, of 10 of the tribes. It's referred to in your Bible as Israel, so it keeps being called Israel. But then there's this second, the Southern Kingdom that kind of separates off its two tribes and it's referred to as Judah. Judah is where the city of Jerusalem is, where the temple of God is, and this is where Daniel is from. Daniel is from the land of Judah. And when we meet Daniel, we are seeing a Hebrew boy who is living in this time where God's consequences are going to be. He's going to actually be sent into exile into the land of Babylonia. And so it's very interesting because the Northern Kingdom, because God said, hey, it's gonna happen, right? It does. The Northern Kingdom is taken by Assyrians. They're brutal, they do horrible things to them. And the Southern Kingdom is taken by Babylonians, which leads us to the next thing that we need to talk about, which is Babylon. It's very interesting because Daniel is not the only book of the Bible that talks about Babylon. And whenever we meet Daniel in the book of Daniel, geographically, we are meeting him in Babylon, which for those of you who like history and geography, modern day, we're talking about the land that would be Iraq today. And while Babylon is a geographical place, I want to propose to you today that Babylon is so much more than a location in this story and in the word of God, that Babylon is actually a spirit. It's actually a mentality that begins to invade in this place. 
And here's the thing, this spirit, this mentality, it doesn't just start here. In fact, we see it all the way at the beginning of the Bible. In fact, if you go to the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, we know that God created the heavens and the earth, right? It's all about his creation. He created man and woman, Adam and Eve. He set them in a garden and he told them, listen, you can have all of it. All of it is yours. This is what I ask you. Don't eat from the tree in the middle. Don't eat the fruit because it's not good for you. God in his sovereignty knew what he was doing and he set restrictions in a perfect place. They communed with him. And then in chapter three, the enemy comes in, Satan, right, the serpent. And he finds Eve and because he is the father of lies, it's the only thing that he knows how to do is to lie. He begins to tell her a lie. And that's when we first start to see this Babylonian spirit, this mentality enter into the world. Because Satan asked Eve, he said, did God really say you couldn't have any of these, is this fruit? Like, did God really say that to you? Which is interesting, he's already manipulating what God said because God said, actually, you can't have all of it, just not this. So the first thing he does is like, did he really say you couldn't have anything? And Eve says, well, no, he said we could, we just can't eat from the tree in the middle because we will die. And so Satan, he whispers to her, you will not die. Like, you're not gonna die. In fact, God knows that when you eat from it, you're gonna be like him. That's why he doesn't want you to have it. And so this lie, this spirit, this mentality of I'm all about you and God is only about himself. Like, stick with me. Like, I'm all about you. I'm gonna let you have whatever you want. God, he's about himself. He doesn't want you to be like him. So we see this kind of this spirit, this mentality. And then if you skip over in Genesis, into chapter 11, we're met with the story of the Tower of Babel. Many of you guys know this story, right? And at, at this point, the creation has been going, there's Noah and the ark and God's you know, judgment again and the, and the flooding and he puts the animals on the ark and all that that's happening, that's, that's done. And now the earth is repopulating. In fact, its population is growing and it says that they have one language. And in Genesis chapter 11, these, these people who are in a, in a place called Shinar in your Bible, but if you look at the footnote, Shinar is actually Babylon. These are Babylonian people. What do they begin to do? This is what they say. Come, everybody, let's get together. Let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we might build a name for ourselves. So we can make a name for ourselves. So we see this, this mentality, this spirit in this, in this tower of Babel that's being built. And in fact, God looks at it because of the motives of their heart, because it was all about them. It was to lower him and to lift themselves up. And because of that, God confuses their language. And in fact, that's where we get Babel means confusion. Literally, he confused their language. Guess what? The spirit, the mentality of Babylon is a spirit of confusion. Because what happens when we reject God and we make ourselves greater and we lower him, that's what it breeds, confusion. But you know what? It doesn't just stop in Genesis. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, another prophet, he talks about the Babylonian mentality, what it's like. He actually gives the model. Isaiah is prophesying in chapter 47 and he says, now then listen, you lovers of pleasure. So he's talking about the Babylonian people. 
Listen, you lovers of pleasure, lounging in your security and saying to yourself, I am and there is none besides me. Which is in direct contrast to what God says. Because right, when, he, when God meets Moses, he says, you tell them that I am. The I am has sent you. And now what we see in Isaiah, the mentality and the model of Babylon is I am, not God, I am, and there is none besides me. And so this Babylonian mentality has two things that it wants you to do. Number one, it wants you to elevate yourself. It is self-adoring, self-building, self-indulging. That's why Isaiah says, you lovers of pleasure. It's all about me. What makes me feel good? That makes me happy. I like doing it. It's all about me. I want to feel comfortable. I want what I want, right? So it does, it elevates self. And the second thing it does is it lowers God. It starts to breathe this like, God doesn't really exist. He doesn't really love you. He doesn't know what's best for you. He wants too much for you. Don't do that. Like, just like, let's like put him to the back burner. Because this mentality is a mentality that rejects God and it causes confusion and chaos and it causes deranged thinking. When we reject God continuously, it causes our minds not to think the way that they were created to think because our minds were created by a creator to know him. And so when we reject him, then we're left to our own devices, which is chaos and confusion. It is me trying to figure out what's good for me because I like it. And you know what that looks a lot like today? And I don't wanna stay here very long because it really isn't the point, but it looks a lot like the culture we're living in, doesn't it? I mean, look at America. America was a country founded in biblical roots, right? One nation under God. And here we are, you know, like they're saying slowly but surely, America is becoming a post-Christian society. And you know what post-Christian means? It doesn't mean that they just don't believe in anything. It's not like these post-Christians are saying like, oh, we don't believe in anything. We're agnostic, we're atheists. We don't believe there is a God. No, no, no. What post-Christian means was that at one point there was exposure with church, with God, and they choose to reject it. Post-Christian means a rejection of God. I don't want that. I've seen that, they're hypocrites, I don't want that. God wants too much for me, I don't want that. His standards are too high, I don't want that. And slowly but surely, we're becoming this post-Christian nation. And it's the same spirit that's in the book of Daniel. So when we meet Daniel, we're seeing him along with all these other Israelites being taken into Babylon. And let me just say this from the beginning. Culture is not our enemy. The enemy is our enemy. And the enemy's goal is to still kill and destroy. He is not our enemy, but what he does is he uses culture to get you to do the things that he wants you to do. And what is culture? Well, it's everything that we're consuming. It's the spirit of this world. It's that Babylonian mentality that's like, hey, it's all about you and it's not about God. Let's like make him last. It's in the music we listen to, it's in the movies we watch, it's in the things that we set our minds to, the things that we worship, it's in greed, it's in, it's all about me, it's indulgence, that's what it's about. And when we meet Daniel, we're seeing that he's being taken into Babylonian exile, into slavery. And he's got to figure out this tension of how do I serve my God whom I love, Yahweh, in a culture that does, wants nothing to do with him. So we're gonna read 
If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. We're gonna be in Daniel chapter one. It's gonna be a pretty lengthy passage, so just stay with me. But this is kind of setting us up for where we're gonna go. But it says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. This is, this is what happens, the consequence, right? So King Nebuchadnezzar, he comes in, he takes it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So not only will they come in and they will defeat the Israelites, but they're actually gonna bring them into captivity. We see that this captivity will last for about 70 years. Daniel's gonna live the fullness in this captivity. And not only did King Nebuchadnezzar come in and take the people, he actually is taking the articles of, of God. He's actually taking the things of the temple. It's just, it's just taking all of it, right? And it says, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. This would be Daniel. So their goal is they're going to come in, they're going to take these people, but the first people they want to take is they want to come in and take these young guys. These guys who are from good families, who are educated. And what they think is if we indoctrinate them enough, they can come in and then they can actually do what we want them to do. He was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter into the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And what we see in this last part of this passage is we begin to see the indoctrination into the culture of the Babylonians. This is why the king, the first thing he wanted them to do is, hey, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take them and I want you to let them read some of our stuff, get to know how we are, what we look like, what we're about. And then after that, I want you to give them some of my food. And we can already see this indoctrination of culture and Daniel's already in this dilemma. What does he do? Because this food and wine from the king would have broken every single one of Daniel's Jewish dietary laws. The laws that they were living under, under Yahweh, this would have destroyed every single one of them. It would have absolutely defiled him and who he was, who his heritage, who Yahweh was to him. And so now we see this tension, like, will he compromise? And, and this food would also would have been sacrificed to idols. So in every sense of the word, it would have been unclean. And so here we see that there is indoctrination of culture into a generation. The enemy is still doing the same exact thing. I'm not one to harp on different kinds of medias and things like that, but look at social media, right? The enemy just comes in and we don't even know it before we know it. it's like everybody's got TikTok. We're just like scrolling, you know, we're just like we're doing all the things. And what happens is slowly but surely, it's like this indoctrination of like, this is how we think. This is how we sound. This is what we say. This is the language that we use. This is what's okay. This is what we do. If you do anything different, you're prude. And so it, the reality is the reason why the book of Daniel is so important because if we don't understand the times that we are living in and look at this playbook of Daniel, then culture will have the same effect on us. And the thing is, is that we won't even notice it when it's happening. 
because culture has an agenda and the enemy uses culture. It's like a smoke screen for him, right? He doesn't, we're, we're so worried about the devil, right? We always talk about, oh, the devil got me this week. It was like, no, he's, he actually doesn't really care about us that much. He's not showing himself to us. What he does is he uses things like culture. He can get us in this repetitive cycle where we're continuously rejecting God and he doesn't have to do a single thing because we're gonna do it to ourselves. We're gonna let this mentality and this culture kind of invade our lives. And so if Daniel is a playbook for all of us, then what is culture's agenda? What is it? I wanna know, do you wanna know? I wanna know what culture's agenda. If this is, if I am gonna have to stand firm in my faith in an ungodly culture, I wanna know what I'm working with. Well, Daniel shows us. In verse seven, it says, the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to, and to, and to Azariah Abednego. Now it's very interesting because most of us only know them by their Babylonian names, right? When we talk about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these were not their names. In fact, don't you think it's interesting that the very first thing that the king does is he renames them. He's like, actually, let's take them and like, let's, let's put a different label on it. And for all of us, like all of us have a name, right? Our names mean something. In the biblical times, names were super important. They weren't going on like baby, babynamemeanings.com and like looking like, oh, I think, I think this is cute. Let's see what it means. No, for them, naming a child, naming someone was very important because it would mean that there was something about that child they've been praying for, believing for, they would give them this name. And not only that, it would contain heritage. It would contain something about their God. And so names were really important. And, I, and the reality is the very first point here is that culture wants to change your identity. That's what it wants to do. It's the same playbook in the book of Daniel. Culture wants to change your identity. The enemy wants to make you believe something about yourself that isn't true. This is what he's been doing from the beginning, from the beginning until now. His strategy isn't any different. He wants you to believe something different than what God says about your life. He wants to steal your identity. And the reality is, is that all of us in this room today are believing something about ourselves. The question is, is, is it what God says about you or is it what culture and the enemy has said about you? Because what you are called is important. You know why what you're called is important? Because the more times you're called it, maybe eventually you'll start to believe it. Maybe if you're called a loser enough, that's what you'll actually believe, that you can never accomplish anything. Maybe if you're called lonely enough, then that's what you'll be. And that's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to completely change your identity. He wants to put a script and a narrative to your life that is not the script that God has said over you. God loves you. His heart is for you. In fact, it says that while we were still sinners, he died for us. He demonstrated his love. That's how much he loves us. And what culture wants to do is he want to, he wants, they want to, the enemy wants to make you believe everything but that. And I think it's interesting that their names are changed because if you actually do some research, it's pretty significant what their name changes were. I don't know how many of you have ever looked into this, but as I was doing this research, there's a book called The Daniel Dilemma by Pastor Chris Hodges. He talks about this, he's researched it out. It's very interesting. And I wanna go through some of these names because the name Daniel, for instance, Daniel's our main character, right? Daniel's name means God is my judge in Hebrew. Here is Daniel, he's saying, God, you are my judge, it's you, I serve you. 
And literally his name was changed to Belteshazzar, which means lady protect the king. Interestingly enough, the first thing they do to Daniel is they give him a feminine name. And you can do the research, but if you look at every single pagan religion out there, every single religion where it's not about God, gender confusion is one of the first things that begins to happen. It's celebrated and it's lifted up. And I think it's interesting that the very first thing that they do is they rename Daniel to a feminine name because you know what? The enemy wants to confuse who you are. He wants to destroy every single relationship that you have in your life. He doesn't want you to be in successful relationships. He wants to change that. He wants to write something over your life that God never intended for it to be written on. Hananiah means Yahweh has been gracious. Literally, he's basically saying, God, you're so good. There's none like you. God, you're so good. That's what his name means. His name was changed to Shadrach, which means I am fearful of God. And what culture wants to say is that God is not for you. That's what the enemy wants you to believe. He wants you to take you from God is good. He's my provider to he's not for me because he wants The enemy wants to destroy your spiritual life too. He wants to destroy how you think about God. First of all, he wants to destroy our relationships and then he wants to even destroy how you even think about God. The next name is Mishael. And that means who is what God is. Literally his name means who is there. There's nobody else who is even like him, none. There's no one like him to Meshach, and Meshach means I am despised, contemptible, and humiliated because the enemy wants us to walk in shame and he wants us to be a coward. He wants us to coward and be intimidated by the culture of this world. And if he has to change our name, that's what he'll do. The last name is Azariah, which is Yahweh has helped. God has helped me. Like he's so gracious, he's always helping, he's my helper to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo. Nebo would have been one of their gods, one of their many gods. Literally what he's saying is, is that Yahweh hasn't helped you, you're a slave. You're a slave to someone who's not even your God. Because you know what God wants to do too, or the enemy wants to do? The enemy wants to destroy your future. He wants you to make you think that you're living in a, in a land of slavery, that that's all it's gonna be. Your future is never gonna be good. And I think it's very, very significant and interesting because the enemy wants to define you, but the only one who can define you is the one who created you. So my question today is, is when culture shifts, we have to know who we are. If we're going to stand firm in an ungodly culture, you have to know who you are because that's the first attack of the enemy is to make you think something different than what God says about you. And if culture is shifting, and we've got to learn how to stand firm in our faith and this ungodly culture. We better know who we are. We better know the truth of what God says about us. We better know that we're loved and that we're chosen, that we're, that we're, we're not slaves, that we're free. We have to know these things. And so what, watch what happens next. Daniel, chat, in verse eight, it says, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. And the next thing that happens is, is when culture shifts, culture wants you to compromise your standards. It's the very next thing that it wants to do. If it can't get you an identity, then what it'll do is it'll make you compromise everything that you believe in. 
And it's interesting because all of us have felt this pressure to compromise our standards in this culture. How many of you ever felt it? I feel it all the time. It's constant pressure of like society and what's right and what's wrong. You can't say that word. You can't say this word. You can't be like that. You can't say you're a Christian. You can't, you can't do all this. And there's this pressure and culture wants you to compromise. And we're in a dilemma. We're in a dilemma. How do we serve God? How do we serve God with all of our hearts and love people when there's so much pressure? Because what happens when we begin to feel this pressure, we begin to feel this compromise, what can happen so many times is that we'll begin to lower the standard of God in our life, which leads to relativism, which basically means like, okay, well, I'm gonna do this, but like, even though I'm doing this, like I'm not doing that over there. So like, like I'm okay. Like, even though I'm doing this one thing, like I'm not doing that, you know? So like, I guess it's like fine. And slowly but surely now we've compromised God's standard in our life, His truth. And what is his standard? It's this. This is the standard that God has for us. And you know what's so sad? You know what the enemy doesn't want you to know? What he doesn't want you to know is that God's standard is not against you. It is for you. And so many of us have believed a lie that this right here, what he says, how he wants us to live is against us. There's no way we could possibly live it. There's no way we can do it. And the enemy wants us to believe that it's against us. But you know what? God's standard is for you. It's to protect you. He created you. He knit you together when, you're in, you, when you were in your mother's womb. He knows exactly what's good for you. And it's in here. And he's, if he's asked us for it, it's not so that he can, you know, just be this God who's like, do all these things. I think it'd be fun. Let's watch him like, just really try to figure it out on a hamster wheel. That's not what he's doing. He's saying, I've given you my word so that you can stand firm, so that you don't have to compromise and you can do it because I'm gonna be with you. I'm gonna give you the Holy Spirit and your life to help give you discernment and wisdom. I'm gonna be with you. You're not gonna be alone. When you're facing compromise, you're not gonna have to be alone because when culture shifts, we have to know our convictions. If we're gonna stand firm in ungodly culture, we better know what we believe and why we believe it. So my question to you today is what are your convictions? Do you know them? Do you have a standard that you are living by that you don't have to think about in a situation, but you already know, nope, I'm not doing that. Hopefully this is your convictions. This, hopefully this is what you're standing on. I think it's very interesting because it says that Daniel resolved not to defile himself, which means that Daniel made a decision before he was even offered the food and wine at the king's table, he had already made a decision that he wasn't gonna defile himself because he had a core set of convictions that his God was his, that Yahweh was his God. And God, Yahweh had set forth dietary laws. And we're not living under that now, but for them he had because he knew it was best for him. And so Daniel, before he was even tempted to eat of it, already knew, I'm not doing it. I already have a set of convictions. I have standards. Because the reality is, is that if you are waiting to figure it out when you're tempted, you're already behind. Guys, especially for those of you who are young, you have to know what you believe. You have to know. 
You know, it's kind of like this. If we believe, if we can all agree that one of the core, one of the core standards in our Bible talks about that sex should be saved for man and woman who are in a marriage, okay? So if that's what we believe is our core standard values, guess what that means for me? That means that if I'm dating, that my core conviction is that sex would be safe for marriage, which means that when I'm tempted in a situation, even though I'm tempted and that's gonna happen, that I can stand firm in what God's called me to because I've already resolved to do it. I'm not waiting to have to figure it out because guess what? If you're waiting to figure it out in the moment, you won't succeed. You won't do it. It's the nature of us. That's why God tells us ahead of time. He knows what's best for us and he wants us to live with with convictions because God calls us to be holy. He says, be holy as I am holy. God calls us to be holy. Holy means set apart. It means that we don't look like the world. It means that when culture says this, that actually doesn't mean that's that's what I have to do. And so many of us in church, I'm talking about Christian people We are not living in holiness because it feels too much, feels too restrictive. It's like, okay, well, like you're a prude, you know, whatever. And it's like, no, God's way is still holiness. And yeah, it goes against everything that culture says to you. It goes against everything you see on TV. It goes against everything that the majority of your friends talk about. It goes against the things that people at your work joke about and talk about. It does, it does. But that's why we have to figure out how do we live in this tension because God still loves people. He still wants us to be in the world and to influence it. So we have to wrestle this out, but you have to know what you believe and you need to know it before it happens. And here's the last one we're gonna pick up in verse 9 through 14. It says, now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. I think it's very interesting. Don't you think it's so interesting at this point that all Daniel has done has been like, no. (laughs) He's been like, I actually have permission not to eat this and already he has favor on his life. Like Ashpenaz already is like showing compassion and favor towards him. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my Lord, the King, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The King would then have my head because of you. Ashpenaz is literally saying, listen, if you don't eat this food, I'm afraid that King Nebuchadnezzar is gonna kill me. If you're wasting away and you look different than everybody else, he's literally gonna have my head. It says, Daniel then said to the guard who the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servant for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance to what you see. So he agreed to this and he tested them for 10 days. This is the first test of many that Daniel's gonna face, right? Because we'll see that later King Nebuchadnezzar is gonna craft an idol, like a a golden image of himself and he wants everybody to worship it. And Shagrach, Meshach and Abednego are like, no, we're not gonna do it. They're thrown into the fiery furnace, but God is with them. He saves their life, right? And then later on, you'll see Daniel, and there's been this decree that's gone out that they can't pray to anyone but the king. And Daniel, as he always does, prays to God. And he's thrown into these den of lions, but God saves him. He's with him. And so the reality is for all of us, testing is going to come. In fact, James tells us that we should consider it pure joy when we go through testing. 
So not only is it gonna come, it's gonna happen, but we should consider it joy. And we see Daniel, Daniel's being tested, tested because culture will always create a confrontation. When it comes to culture, there is always going to be a confrontation. What do you believe? Will you do it? Or is it just something you say? And the world is waiting, right? They're waiting and they're watching and they're looking at us. They're waiting for us to be hypocrites. They're waiting for us to compromise. They're waiting for this confrontation moment when we say what we believe and then we have this choice and what are we gonna do? And almost kind of feels like the world is kind of got there. It's like this, I gotcha. They're just waiting for it, you know? And it doesn't help that we live in a world of social media and 24 hour news cycles. And basically people are waiting for you to screw up. And then when you do, they're gonna put it everywhere all the time. (laughs) We live in a cancer culture, cancel culture. You can't even say something without it being everywhere. And this this is the world that we're living in. And all of us have felt it because culture will always create a confrontation. So when culture shifts, we must respond the right way. So here's the reality, is that we have one of two ways that we can respond. And the reality is for most of us in here who are Christians, we have not responded well. Because what'll happen is we'll either go very dogmatic where it's like, everybody's going to hell and I don't care and this is the truth. We get on our social media posts, whatever we want to and just expect for everybody to like figure it out. Or we go this route that's all about love, accept everybody, if it doesn't hurt you, then it's fine, you know? And these are the two tensions we live in. And what do we do in the middle of it? Well, I think we need to look at Jesus. What does he do, right? In John 1, 14, it says, the word became flesh and he made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and full of truth. Jesus, total perfection, found him. If you see him in the New Testament, you know who he's with? Total perfection and righteousness. He's with sinners. He's with prostitutes, he's with lepers, that is who he's with. And so we have to wrestle through grace and truth. How do we do it? Because grace is God's favor and kindness upon our life, right? It's the invitation of God. God wants us to live full of grace towards people because he's extended it to us. In fact, if you're a believer in this room, it is because of the grace of God. So God wants us to extend grace to others, but not only is he full of grace, he's full of truth. And truth is his standard, it's his word. And what it's showing us is that we can be full of grace, we can extend grace to other people, but we are full of truth. We do not compromise the word to make people feel better. We don't do it. We love people where they are and we tell them God has a plan and a purpose for you, but we don't lower God to make them comfortable. And that's where we have to live because grace without truth is meaningless. Truth without grace is mean. Together, they are good medicine and it is what the world needs from you and me. This is what we're called to live in. We're close, as we close, I want you to stand with me because the reality is, is that at this point of the message, this is all about our response. Like, what are we gonna do with this, right? Because the reality is, is that this could easily be just another message that we hear and we go away and we talk about it a little maybe and then, you know, whatever. But I believe that God wants to do something in each of our lives. And maybe for you, if you're sitting in this room, maybe for you what it is, is there have been places in your life where you have compromised, where you have compromised conviction. Maybe there's a place in your life where you've been so dogmatic in your approach 
with your work friends, with your school friends. You've been all truth. You get on your social media account. You just, you love to just hammer the other side. You know, it's like, it's truth. And tons of arguments are happening in your comment section and you feel good because you feel like you're right. Well, God didn't call you to be right. He called you to be effective. And for some of us, we need to repent. For some of us who have families, we need to go home and we need to ask God, what does it look like to be full of grace and full of truth in our home? Where we're gonna love God and we're gonna show grace to each other, but we're gonna have a set of standards. For some of us, it might be like the things on our phones. Maybe it's the social media apps. Maybe it's Netflix or Hulu, whatever it is. And it's not necessarily, this isn't, get rid of it. You know, we're not, we're not at Rock of Ages here, okay? This is about God speaking to your heart and asking you, are there places where you have let something come in that wants to derail you and lower God and exalt yourself? And if it is, we need to give it to Him and we need to repent. And if you're sitting in this room and you've never accepted Jesus into your heart, let me tell you something, He loves you. And culture, yeah, it wants you, but man, God loves you and He has provided a way for you to be with Him. And if that's you, and this next prayer that we pray, all you have to do is ask Him to come into your heart. The Word talks about that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. That's what you have to do. Okay, so let's pray. Lord, we love you so much, God. We worship you. You are holy. God, we thank you for this time that we've had together, God, where we've gone through your word, Lord. We've seen what the enemy's scheme is, God. God, it's, it's planned to make you low and, for, and to exalt us, Lord, and we just repent, God. As a group of people, as Christians in this place, God, we repent for every place where we have allowed culture to dictate something in our life. God, we repent for every place where we have, we have lowered your standard, we've compromised the word. And God, we also repent, God, for every place where we've been judgmental and dogmatic and we've made people feel like they're less than because they're not walking in the truth. God, I pray for each and every one of us, God, that you would show us yourself. God, how you balance full of grace and full of truth. May we be people at this church whose mission is to reach people far from God. Lord, show us, how do we do it? God, give us wisdom and discernment. What does it look like to be full of grace and full of truth at school this next year? What does it look like for us to be full of grace and full of truth at our workplace? What does it look like to be full of grace and full of truth in our homes, Lord? God, show us. God, teach us. Show us your ways, Lord. And God, I pray if there's anyone in this room who's never made a decision for you, God, Lord, I pray that they would be bold to take that next step, that you are kind and you are good. You are full of grace and you're inviting them into a life with you, Jesus. And God, and it's your standard, it's your, it's your word that frees them. So God, as they just give you control, I pray that you would come into their life. We thank you for the word, God. We pray that this word would just take root in our lives, God, that it would produce fruit. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.